Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio in Gwinnett, it's time for Silver Lining in the Cloud, brought to you by Computer Design and Integration. Good morning and welcome to Silver Lining in the Cloud, where we talk with business leaders from Atlanta and the surrounding communities. Silver Lining in the Cloud is brought to you by CDI Managed Services, where we outsource IT solutions, infrastructure support, and cloud computing. I'll be your host today, Dominic Rainey. Our, uh, my co-host is uh, doing some marketing stuff today, so uh, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time, uh, Nicole, having you involved in the show. Uh, we've got uh, three great business leaders with us today from uh, Starwood Business Group. We'll be talking with their owner and managing broker, Yasmin Jandali. Did I say that right, Yasmin? I'm very impressed. You did great. Great, great. <laughs> uh, and second up, we're going to be with uh, uh, Noah Pines. He's with the law firm of uh, Ross and Pines. Hey, Noah. Good morning. Great, great. And also, last but not least, from the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett, we'll be speaking with their marketing strategist, Mike Gifford. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Dom. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you all for being with us today and taking the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, everybody's busy today, so uh, we're glad to have you here. Uh, so first up, let's start with uh, Yasmin. Tell us about uh, Starwood Business Group and uh, what you guys do there. Well, thank you for having me again. This is my fourth visit on Business Radio X, and it's always a pleasure to come and meet with you. And uh, Starwood Business Group, we've been in uh, metro Atlanta for about 10 years, helping local business owners when they're ready to transition out of owning their business. Maybe they're ready to retire, go into a different opportunity, just whatever life might bring their way. And uh, we're there to help them through the exit planning process with the valuations and uh, finding good quality buyers to take over their businesses. Excellent, excellent. So you must be active. Yes, we are very active. Ah, great, great. Yasmin, uh, you know, let's say I'm a business owner and, and I, and I want to sell my, my company. What kind of preparation, what kind of documentation, uh, what should I be thinking about? That's a great question. And so to preface that, I'd like to say that there's really no bad time to sell a business. Whenever you're ready is when it's a good time to sell the business. Ideally, it's when your business is most profitable and you're making the most money because that's when it's going to be the most attractive. But in order to prepare, you want to make sure that you have good, strong books and records, good financials. That's the number one thing you need to have ready to go because that's what any good qualified buyer is going to want to see is good financials, good clean books and records. Okay, so uh, housekeeping, do a little housekeeping. Housekeeping, absolutely. Okay, great. I guess it helps if you've been doing good housekeeping along the way. Huh? It sure does because then you don't have to scramble to catch up. So uh, keep in mind you need to have two to three years of good strong financials uh, that show your, your cash flow and show your good strong revenue and uh, then we'll take it from there. I see a couple of acronyms here, SDC and SDE, related to cash flow. That's that correct, right? yes. So SDC. Let's talk about that. Sure, SDC is Seller's Discretionary Cash Flow. Another word for it is SDE, Seller's Discretionary Earnings, where in our world they mean pretty much the same thing. And SDC is really the magic number for which we're calculating when we're doing these business valuations because that's going to be the driver for what businesses are worth. And that cash flow number is the number that uh, a business owner is really could put in their pocket. How much cash is this business throwing off? Mm -hmm. And that cash flow number needs to be used for three things. Number one, obviously the owner needs to pay themselves a salary. Number two, if they take on any debt, 
to buy the business. It needs to service the debt. And then they need to be able to reinvest back into the business. So we take all that into consideration when we're calculating cash flow and then calculating the value of the business. Excellent. We're speaking with Yasmin Jandali with Starwood Business Group here on Silver Lining in the Cloud. Uh, Yasmin, uh, you know, cash flow, uh, what's the difference between cash flow and net income? Well, net income or net loss is the number that uh, you'd see on the tax return, that very bottom line there. And uh, most of us and most of our accountants... choose to minimize our tax liability. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, There's nothing wrong with paying taxes. We all need to pay taxes, but you want to pay as little as possible. And so sometimes that net income number may not be the most reflective of how much cash the company is actually throwing off, because there are a lot of discretionary expenses, one-off expenses, things like that that are run through the through the numbers, through the books, that we can then add back and then calculate that cash flow. Well, you know, a lot of companies, I'm sure, are still climbing out of that recession we went through a few years ago. So, um, you know, if I'm not showing uh, a profit, can I still sell my company and get a reasonable... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Again, cash flow and net income are not the same thing. So don't freak out when you see that negative number or that low number on the net income. And I tell that to prospective buyers, too, uh, because the majority of our buyers are first-time buyers who've never owned a business before. So we have to educate them about the process of reviewing tax returns and analyzing for cash flow. And we tell them, look, when you're looking for a business to buy and you see that net loss on the tax returns, don't let that worry you too, too much, because in reality, there's probably a little bit more there. Uh, So yes, there's always um, the opportunity to sell a business, even if it shows a net loss on the tax returns. But that's why you need a professional to be able to review them and analyze them and give you good, solid uh, feedback and information. So, uh, okay, talk about the professional aspect of it. And the I'm sure you have to go through some kind of an assessment process. How does that work? Does that cost? How many hours does it take? That type of thing. Sure. Well, uh, our, our every firm, every office has a maybe different way of doing things. Uh, we're very glad that we're able to provide prospective clients with uh, complimentary, free, no cost, uh, no obligation business valuations. And we require three years of uh, historical corporate tax returns, interim P&Ls, just, you know, the standard financials. And uh, it takes us about a week or so to put the valuation report together. And it's a valuation model that we've developed in-house that's exclusive to us. And uh, after we put that together. We have a very great report. Then we sit down, we discuss with the business owners. The majority of our businesses in my office actually sell for an average of 90 to 95% of the asking price. And that's a really good average. And it's because we do a fantastic job up front of not wasting anybody's time and making sure we're transparent and clear and have all of our ducks in a row before we even take the business to market. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs uh, have the dream, uh, build it, sell it. Uh, at some point, the timing is everything. So, uh, what if uh, you know? What if I, uh, you know, I want to sell my company, but um, you know, I can't just walk away from it. You know, what what if the dream isn't you know just cash in, walk away? Is that is the market changing? I see a lot of companies, uh, the owners are having to stay on board and 
and uh, for a period of time and that sort of thing. So is finance, is owner financing come into it? And how does sure. that all that Well, regardless of the financing, there is always going to be a transition period where the owner is going to be expected to stay on for a certain period of time to help with the transition, to help with the training, introduce uh, the new owner to key clients, that sort of thing, make sure to get them comfortable. Uh, and then there are some businesses that, although they may be great businesses, just won't qualify for any business loan, unfortunately, because banks do tend to be more conservative, as we know. And so in that situation, seller financing might come into play. So yes, the majority of the time, the sellers are going to be involved, whether it's just through the transition and training process, and sometimes in the financing as well. Okay, Yasmin Jandali with uh, Starwood Business Group. So uh, Yasmin, the, the uh, you know the valuation process, and you say yours is, you own it. So it's a, it, your methodology mm -hmm. a little different, or do you want to elaborate a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, the valuation, it's, it's that uh, uh, cliche of it's an art, not a science, right? So you could mm -hmm. give the same financials to 10 different uh, professionals and get 10 different values. Hopefully, they'll be somewhere in a, in a similar range. Uh, but we use our experience in the businesses that we've sold in the past and uh, industry comps and We've got a. We, I can't tell you exactly how I do it, but secret, <laughs> it's a secret sauce. sauce. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but we do have that methodology that, uh, again, leads us to a, a fantastic success rate of ninety-two percent of, on average, ninety to ninety-five percent of the asking price. Okay, we love statistics. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so what kind of statistics are we looking at uh, in terms of fees and? commissions and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, we're we're happy to not charge any upfront fees. We're purely success-based uh, because we want to get paid when we do our job for you. And so once we uh, do our job and the seller gets paid at the closing table, so do we. And uh, we're happy to operate that way. And, you know, you said that you love statistics. Uh, the majority of small businesses in this country will change hands every five to seven years. And a lot of people don't realize that and that's why it's important to always make sure that you keep your business in good order keep your books and records clean and uh and just be be prepared because you never know what life is going to bring your way yeah you mentioned uh, you know three five seven, you know those three five seven ten years seem to be milestones for some reason yeah that's right well that's when people especially with the first time buyers they go in they learn a business and that's when they're figuring out whether being an entrepreneur or a business owner is for them or not some people just prefer to be employees and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that. And some people get in, they get their feet wet, and they're like, oh, I love this. I'm ready for a bigger challenge. I'm ready for a bigger business. So then they're just upgrading to something different. There's any number of reasons why anybody would sell a business. And just because a business is for sale absolutely does not mean that there's something wrong with it. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, let's say I'm, uh, you know, I get the information, and uh, and then of course I start telling my buddies. You know, I start telling my, I'm in the gym, and Frank says, "Hey, I hear you're selling your business." Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, he says, "You know, that should be uh, worth uh, X do dollars." I, you guys have really done well over there. You know, and everybody wants to know what you're selling your company for. Sure. Uh, how does that work? You know, in terms of uh, you know getting. Uh, kind of the number that, that, that should be the number. Well, again, that's all in making sure that you hire the right professional to help you with that. Because as uh, your your gym buddy, Frank, might be a great guy and he might be great at what he does, but he probably doesn't know very much about valuing businesses or selling businesses. Mm -hmm. So you leave that to the professionals. And then, you know, to go back to your initial question, you probably don't really want to tell your buddy, Frank, that you're selling your business in the first place because you do want to make sure to leave it as confidential as possible. It's not like selling a house 
or something else or a piece of property, it needs to be confidential. It needs to be discreet because you don't ever want to do anything to jeopardize the operation, to risk your relationships with your key clients or vendors or any loyal employees that you have. So it's business as usual. Yes, I like that uh, confidentiality aspect of it. Uh, sometimes it's a, just a one-shot deal in life, so you really want to keep that confidential. Great, ad great advice, Jasmine. So uh, let's let's uh, why is why is let's talk about a higher revenue versus higher cash flow. You know, which is better? Well. As I mentioned earlier, cash flow is really the driving force behind the value of a business. So we could have a company that makes you know, $50, $50 million in annual revenue, but if they can't keep very much of that revenue down to the bottom line, then that $50 million is not necessarily worth very much. And so it really all boils down to how much they keep to that bottom line, how much cash flow the business throws off. That's going to be the driving force uh, for what the business is worth. And from my opinion, my perspective, that's more valuable than uh, necessarily a higher uh, revenue number. Okay, great. So what do you like most about what you do? What I like most about what I do, obviously, is meeting so many fantastic people and learning about all these different kinds of industries because we are not limited to any type of business or industry. So we get to learn about all these different businesses and about the fun and interesting ways that people find to earn a living. It's, it's really inspiring. I can see that in your face, Jasmine. So tell our listeners how they can reach out to you and Starwood Business Group and get more information or uh, get that free assessment. Uh, yeah, starwoodbusinessgroup.com. All the information is there. LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, what else is there? We've pretty much got it all, and uh, we've got a blog online as well. You can check that out and send us uh, an email so we can add you to our newsletter and keep you posted on business opportunities that become available. Uh, starwoodbusinessgroup.com. All the information is there. We'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Thank you, Yasmin. Great, great. Okay, so next up we've got uh, Noah Pines. He's with Ross and Pines LLC. Noah, good morning. Tell good. us about Ross and Pines and uh, what's going on there. Good morning, uh, Ross and Pines. Uh, and I probably should ask Yasmin how to term my company. I always hate saying we're boutique because boutique sounds a little pretentious, mm -hmm. and I, I hate to say we're a small firm because small firm to some people means not a good firm. But we are a uh, small boutique firm that handles personal injury, criminal defense, and immigration matters um, in the greater Atlanta area. So you really have three, three different practices? We do. We, have, we are, uh, I think, unique in that we have three separate practices. They're diverse. Um, we're a real firm. Peter Ross and I are partners. We've been business partners for the last 10 years. We have real employees. A lot of times when you go to a law firm, you, you know, you'll have three names on the door, and, and in reality, they're three separate entities. We're a real entity um, with real employees and, and real benefits, so we pay our employees. Uh, how old is the firm? Uh, Peter has been practicing by himself for uh, over 20 years. Uh, he and I joined together about 12 years ago, and Ross and Pines was formed about 10 years ago. Okay, okay. So do you want to talk a little bit about your background and what aspect of the uh, firm that, that you cover? Yeah, I, I spent my first eight years as a prosecutor, mostly in DeKalb County. I started out prosecuting misdemeanors, you know, DUI, shoplifting, domestic violence cases uh, in the solicitor's office in DeKalb County. While I was in school, I had an internship there. When I was at Emory Law School, I had an internship there along with some other courts and decided I wanted to become a prosecutor. It's a really good place to get uh, your feet wet, to learn how to be in a courtroom, um, how to try cases. And so probably my first three years, I tried over, you know, probably over 100 cases, which is a lot. 
After that, I went to the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office where I mostly prosecuted child abuse, child molestation, child homicide cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, left in, when my, about when my son was born in 2001, joined my old friend Peter Ross. Okay, Noah. So that's a great background. Um, has the, in 12 years, uh, has there been a lot of changes in, uh, in the legal system and, uh, you know, how it affects you today versus it did uh, 12 years ago? You know, it, it's interesting. When I was a prosecutor, I could never, um, at least in the beginning, I never really imagined I would do criminal defense. I, I thought I'd be a prosecutor almost th- for my career. And when I got into private practice, I realized that not every prosecutor, um, I would say, is or was as fair as I was. You know, when you're a prosecutor, you wield a tremendous amount of power, how to charge somebody, when to charge somebody, what to charge them with. I took my job very seriously. I I would review and investigate every case before I would file either an indictment or or what's called an accusation, which is a charging document. If there was a video in the case, if it was a DUI case, I'd watch the video first. Mm -hmm. If there were witnesses, uh, child witnesses or child victims in a, you know, molestation case, I would interview them first. That doesn't happen anymore. These prosecutors today, um, I hate to say they just charge everybody and, 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 they really don't, um, in my mind, ex- exercise their prosecutorial discretion. Uh, they, they just take the cases that comes in from the police department. They believe everything that's said there, and, and they just charge people and say, well, we'll figure it out later. And that's a shame, if you ask me. I think mm-hmm. before um, somebody is charged with a crime, you really should, as a prosecutor, look at all of the evidence to determine whether this person should be charged and what they should be charged with. Okay, so uh, I guess it depends. Uh, you know, you have a different perspective when you kind of sit on both sides of the fence. Yeah, so you, you do. And, and, you know, the good thing for me and my clients is I know the perspective of the prosecution, the police officers. I know the procedures. I know the way things happen. And I think that that benefits my clients to understand really, you know, h- how a case is going to get from point A to point B in a prosecutor's mind. And, and obviously my job um, and what I do, I, I think – um, more than other defense attorneys, is I take the opportunity early on to try to give prosecutors, you know, exculpatory information, information that they don't have. I do my own investigation in every case. I don't rely on the police officers. If a police officer says something in a statement, I go find the witness and say, is that really what happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they say, oh, you know, uh, an eyewitness picked somebody out of a photo lineup, is that true? Did they really pick somebody out of a photo lineup, is, or, or is the officer just saying that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, along the lines here, uh, you know, you're, with your background and your experience on both sides of it, uh, I'm just curious how you see this uh, new direction for uh, police wearing you know, these cameras, and, and everybody's going to be wearing cameras, it seems like, to view, uh, you know, what's, what's going on and who's at fault. In my mind, they should. Um, there's two reasons. One, it will protect police officers, no questions about it. It will protect police officers out in the field, and I've got a lot of friends who are police officers, and I want them to be protected. Um, and it will also protect you and, you know, and your wife or your son or your friend or your neighbor and everybody else who's out there. You know, it used to be you get pulled over by a police officer, you know, maybe you get a ticket, maybe they tell you your tag lights out and they give you a warning. Now it seems that every stop a police officer makes, they're trying to find out, hey, can I search your car? What's going on? Where are you going? You know, it's none of your business where I'm going. Yeah, that's what police officers do. They stop you. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Mm-hmm. Does that really matter? I mean, if they want to give you a ticket for speeding, does it matter where you're coming from and where you're going to? And these these questions seem innocent, but really they are um you know, they are an assault on your constitutional rights. I tell, I give speeches to, um, to high school kids, 
and I tell them, look, be polite to the officer, but you don't have to, you don't have to tell them where you're coming from or where you're going. You don't have to consent to a search of your car. People always say, well, why, why wouldn't I consent to a search for my car? I don't have anything to hide. And, and the reason is because you have a constitutional right. Um, the police officer really shouldn't even be asking you to search your car. Yeah. And they're not asking you because they think you're a terrorist. They're asking you because they just want to search your car. Yeah. They know the process. They know the, they know the, the, you know, the inside book, and they know what they can do in their leeway, and you don't know anything. So Correct. So you're, you're, you're vulnerable. Correct. I get it. That's great advice. Uh, we're talking with uh, Noah Pines. He's a partner at Ross and Pines. Great advice. And, uh, you know, criminal law is certainly something that uh, you have to keep up with. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, what you were just saying about, you know, you know, you know your rights. It almost seems that when you take, you know, when you take your driver's test, you ought to have the, you know, the four or five things that you should know if you do get pulled over. I mean, people don't know. They don't have a choice. So when, how do I know I need a criminal defense lawyer? When do I know? How do I know? Well, you know, that's kind of two questions. One is, what are your rights? I always tell people when you get pulled over, be smart, okay? Um, you know, roll down your window, put your hands on top of your steering wheel so the police officer can see it. I, I watched the video online in South Carolina that a lot of people had seen where a guy was in a gas station, got out of his car, a police officer had his camera on, pulls up and says, let me see your license. And the gentleman reaches into his car to get his license. And what's the officer do? Shoots him. Thinks he's going for a weapon. He shot him. Wow. And he said, well, you know, the, the guy who got shot was still coherent. What did what, you do that for? And the police officer said, you know, get on the ground, get on the ground. He goes, you told me to get my license. Now, that gentleman didn't do a thing wrong. Um, I believe that officer was charged. And by the way, that you know what he was stopping him for? No. Seatbelt violation mm. in a gas station. Mm. That gentleman did nothing wrong who got shot. Yeah. That being said, before I would have reached into my car, I would have said, officer, my license is in my car. May I get it? So be smart, okay? Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is know your rights. You don't have to um, consent to a search of your car. You don't have to answer questions. You have to give them your license. You have to give them insurance if they ask and registration. But where you're coming from, where you're going to, you know, what would you do today, all those are questions. They're fishing expedition questions by mm -hmm. the police officer. You can say, officer, here's my license and insurance. I'd rather not answer any other questions. You know, they're going to say, why? What do you have to hide? And the answer is, you know, it's none of your business. I always tell the uh, the high school kids I talk to, it's like you're you want to talk to a pretty girl. You don't care what the conversation is as long as there's a conversation. And these officers don't really care what your answers are as long as you keep talking to them because then they're going to figure out how to get the information out of you that they want. Wow. wow. The, the third obviously is don't consent to a search of your car ever. In my mind, you you have a constitutional right. You know, to me, the Constitution it's it's a uh, a leash on government. They have no right to search your car. Police officers don't have to tell you that. Um, but what if they say we're gonna, I'm going to take you downtown. I'm, I'm going to take you downtown. downtown. That's fine because that's going to help me win your case later. I'm going to go get a drug dog. That's fine. I'm, it's going to help me win your case later. I, I, I had a case many, many years ago where um, a client of mine did not consent to a search of his car, mm -hmm. and the officer had a drug dog and walked the drug dog around the car, and the drug dog didn't alert. There's no question the dog did not alert. And you know what the cop did? He said to the to my client, he goes. All right, my dog alerted. I'm going to you know, start searching. Might as well tell me where it is. And then my client said, it's under the seat. Mm -hmm. It was a lie. The police officers are allowed to lie to you. They are. Um, so my, my whole thing is the Constitution protects us. You know, exercise your rights. Uh, it goes also with you have the right to remain silent. People always say, well, the officer didn't tell me I have the right to remain silent. 
but everybody knows that. So you don't have to answer questions except for, again, roadside questioning. You don't have the right to a lawyer necessarily, uh, but you also don't have to incriminate yourself. Mm-hmm. You can say, officer, I'd rather not answer that question. And, you know, those are the, you know, those are the things you should know. Great advice. Great advice, Noah. So, you know, one of the, one of the biggies today is DUI. I mean, right. let's just, you know, they pull you over. The first thing they want to know if you've been drinking, it seems like. I mean, it's, right. it's just the most common thing. So let's say, uh, you know, you're stopped for a DUI. You know, what should, what, should, what should I do if I'm pulled over for, you know, and I've had one drink. Let's say I stopped by and met some buddies at a bar and I had a drink and it was 10 minutes. I'm on the road. You know, you can obviously smell alcohol in my breath, you know, when I get pulled over for crossing a double line or something. And, and uh, he says, have you been drinking? Right. So, uh, you know, people always ask me, what do I do not to get a DUI? And, and I always say this, if you, if you really don't want a DUI, I promise this will work, right? Don't have more than two drinks and drive. You know, that, that's it because you're not going to get a DUI for that. Let's say you've had one drink, right? And you get pulled over because you've been, quote, weaving in your lane, which is what police officers stop people for now, which, you know, lanes are, what, 10 feet wide, your car is eight feet wide, and, and you move over six inches because you're on your cell phone or doing something. Happens all the time. And you're right. The first thing the officer says is, have you been drinking? So there's two answers. No, right? Or, yeah, I've had one or two drinks. And again, it goes to, you don't have to answer that question. Because if you say no, and you have been drinking, the officer says, oh, so you, but I smelled on your breath. And you go, well, yeah, I had one drink. And then the next thing you go, oh, they, they lied to me. Um, or if you say you had two drinks and you've just made an admission. Um, you know, okay. if an officer wants to do field, you know, wants to arrest you for DUI, they're going to arrest you for DUI, and, you, and you're not going to really be able to stop that. I tell people not to do field sobriety evaluations. Those are the, the three things that they do on the side of the road, sometimes four, you know, Tell me your ABCs. Let me check your eyes to see if you have nystagmus, which is a medical condition, which police officers are not trained to recognize. It, it's, it's junk science. Um, walk a straight imaginary line. I don't know how you walk a straight imaginary line if it's imaginary and stand on one foot. Um, those tests are designed to make you fail. Okay, they're all balance tests. The older you get, the worse your balance is. Um, I, I tell people it's like, you know, my 11-year-old daughter has a spelling test and she has 10 questions. If she gets eight right and two wrong, that's an 80, okay? When you do field sobriety evaluations, if you do eight things right and two things wrong, that's a negative 20. They don't count the things that you do right. They only count the things that you do wrong. So I tell people never to take field sobriety evaluations. They're not accurate. They're not valid. Um, they're only going to be used against you. Mm-hmm. The question that then happens, well, if I get arrested, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to take the test or not? And the reality comes down to, uh, you know, when you get a license in Georgia, you have given your implied consent, which means that you agree that if you are asked to take a um, breath test or a blood test that you or a urine test, that you will take one. And if you don't, you have the possibility of losing your license for a year administratively. We're separate from the criminal case, so it gets a little complicated. I tell people, if you have not been drinking, always take a test. No question about it. And then ask for your own independent test. You have the right to have your own independent test. Ask for a blood test. Um, if you've had a drink or two and, you know, again, take the test. Um, and always ask for your own independent test. If you've had a lot of drinks, you have to decide whether you want to take the test, which is going to show that you've, you know, 
probably have an alcohol limit over the legal limit or suffer a suspension of your license for 12 months for refusing. Um, most people in Atlanta need to drive. So if you're in a position where you need to drive for work, always take the test. If a DUI is going to ruin your entire career and you don't worry, you know, you don't care about driving for the next year, I would say, you know, refuse. But, you know, go back to my first premise of just don't drink and drive and you'll be okay. No, I feel like I need to put your business card in my glove box. Well, I appreciate you that. You have yeah. a lot of insight and a lot of experience. Uh, Noah Pines with Ross Pines uh, Law Firm, and we're talking about uh, criminal defense law and uh, DUIs. I mean, this stuff is not fun. It's, uh, it's expensive, right? I mean, what's it cost to get out of a DUI? Let's say you are drinking and it is proven. Can you keep it off your record? What does it cost? I mean, I'm getting you wound up now, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. In the state of Georgia, I could shoot you and, uh, you know, and hurt you and get first offender treatment, which means that once I complete my sentence, even though it would be a felony sentence, I'm not a convicted felon. It's called first offender. There's no first offender for DUI. Um, organizations like MAD have taken that away. Um, so it is expensive to have a DUI. It's not the end of the world, but obviously your insurance rates are going to go up. And, um, you know, some jobs, it's going to be tougher to get. It's, so it's not the end of the world, but it, it is very expensive uh, to, get, to have a DUI. Long it's not time. a problem money can't solve. But it's, Correct, yeah. Uh, and I would say any criminal case. Um, I get a lot of calls from people who, you know, have a shoplifting or a criminal trespass or some sort of, you know, minor misdemeanor case. And they say, I can't afford a lawyer. And I always tell them, you can't afford not to get a lawyer. You know, maybe it's going to cost you, I don't know. $2,500, maybe, maybe more, maybe $5,000 now to defend yourself in a case to get it dismissed, to get it off your record. But if you don't do that, um, you know, your other business leaders can tell you that that's going to that case is going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars over your life in lost job opportunities or lost or increased insurance rates or, um, you know, those matters. It is. It really, you know, unfortunately, there, there are scarlet letters now. And with the Internet, these cases do follow people forever. Okay. Noah. So, uh, you know, how do I pick the right lawyer? I mean, everybody knows one or seems to or they have a relative or something like that. Uh, how do you pick the right lawyer? Yeah, A lot of people start on the Internet. I don't know that that's the best place to start. I would ask friends if they have. Um, well, first of all, if you have a friend who's a lawyer, ask your friend who's a lawyer. Um, I refer people to other lawyers all the time. You know, lawyers are they know the right lawyer to get you to. So ask friends um, if you are looking on the Internet, you know, call them and go see them. I, I tell everybody, you know make an appointment with three or four lawyers and then pick the one with the most experience you can afford. Mm -hmm. um, people who just panic and do it, you know, quickly over the phone or over the internet without talking face to face with, with somebody I think is making a mistake. Would you ever pick a doctor like that? And the answer mm -hmm. is no. You know, you'd want to go have a consultation. Um, every criminal lawyer I know or every good criminal lawyer does free consultation. So it doesn't cost you anything to go talk to a lawyer. I still love the idea that you've been on the other side of the fence. You've been a criminal defense uh, attorney. Um, that goes big with me, that you know both sides of the spectrum. And uh, So anyway, uh, let's tell, you know, what uh, you've, you've, you've got a lot of experience. You've got a lot of cases. Uh, tell us about something recent that's, that, uh, where, you, where you made a difference. Yeah, there, there are two cases that come to mind. Um, and one uh, is a case where my client was facing a mandatory five years in prison for a drug charge. And uh, the facts weren't very good for him. But, you know, what helped me help him 
actually what, what helped him was that, you know, I, I think that every case has its own flow. And experienced lawyers know when to push cases and when to hold off. And um, just sort of in the way that I navigated his case through the system, it turned out that the prosecutor who was handling the case, who was very gung-ho, ended up getting deployed on some you know, military, um, military leave. And the new prosecutor who came in, I knew really didn't care as much about, you know, it was a marijuana case, about a marijuana case. And so um, based on some things that I was able to get my client to do, and, uh, you know, proactively when, when he first hired me, uh, he went from facing five years in prison to seven years probation. That's big. That's a, that's a big that's difference. A big and it was because of the relationships that I had with that prosecutor is one of the things, but most importantly, the way that, you know, I kind of navigated the case through the mm-hmm. system. So mm-hmm. to me, every case has its own path. Mm-hmm. The other case was a, a 13-year-old who was actually charged as an adult. You can charge 13-year-olds with adult crimes in Georgia for certain crimes. are called seven deadly sins. And he was clearly not guilty. And, and he had a, uh, it was a long story, but his case started in Superior Court. And then I ended up getting uh, it transferred to Juvenile Court, which is much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, probably showed up to court 20 to 25 times over four, no, five years. He's 18 now, 13 to 18. And it was just one of those cases where I refused to give up. And just every time, you know, the parents were very, obviously very frustrated. You know, this is ruining our life and he's under these restrictions. And I just said, look, we have to just keep fighting. We have to just keep fighting. Trust me, we have to keep, keep fighting. And ultimately was able to get the case dismissed. And walking out of the courthouse, the, um, his father said to me, turned to me, and he goes, I, I bet you wish you would have charged more money because I charged a flat fee, you know, mm-hmm. five years ago. And I looked at him and I said, you know, some cases aren't about the money. I go, and, and some days, you know, you kind of want to quit your job, and today's not one of them. It was a day where, you know, I really felt like I made a, a difference. And I know I did. I mean, mm-hmm. I made a difference in somebody's life and, and saved him, um, you know, from going originally from going to adult prison and ultimately from, from anything. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, that is a big turnaround. That's a great turnaround. Great story. All right, Noah. So, uh, tell us, uh, you know, tell our listeners how they can reach out to you and your firm and, um, get more information, uh, what they should do if they need help. And, um, you know, yeah, our website is Ross, R-O-S-S, the word and, A-N-D, pines.com. Um, on Twitter, we're at Ross and Pines. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, you can send me an email directly to uh, info at rossandpines.com. All emails come to me. Uh, so you're, you're not, your email is not going to be answered by an assistant or a paralegal or a secretary. I, I answer all the emails myself. And if you have any questions about any area of law, I'll be more than happy to help you. Where's your office located? We're in Sandy Springs, um, right at 4285 on the Glenridge Connector. So centrally located great to everybody. Location. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you, Noah. Thank great, you. Great having you on the show. All right. So you're listening to Silver Lining in the Cloud, brought to you by CDI Managed Services. Uh, next up, uh, we've got uh, a, a guest who has uh, started something new. Mike Gifford, he's with the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett. I love the tongue twisters. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do. Well, the uh, National Business Chamber corporately, Dom, started in 2013. And I opened the Greater Gwinnett chapter back in August of this year. 
And one of the questions I know people ask sometimes is, why did you start another chamber? Because there's a significantly large chamber already here in Gwinnett, and it's a very good chamber. And in fact, there are multiple chambers in Gwinnett County. What I found is that uh, several businesses actually belong to multiple chambers. And the reason is that each one has its own personality. Each one has its own niche. The traditional chamber is a business-to-business model, whereas our chamber is a business-to-consumer model. In other words, what I'm looking to do is to help bring actively bring customers to my members. So I'm actually out in the field working on behalf of my customers, kind of like, well, I'm calling myself a marketing strategist. So that's what I'm out there doing. Absolutely. I was just going to ask you, what, uh, what does a marketing strategist do in your, in your world? Okay. It's, uh, it's a great, a great definition. It's a th- totally different twist. Well, and in fact, I've already employed it since I've been here. I already know who to contact here about getting the windows clean because I have a window cleaner in the chamber. <laughs> and I'm sitting here listening to each of you and strategizing as I'm listening to you uh, what ways might our chamber be able to assist you in your businesses. Yeah. So, so talk about some of your marketing tools. You got some unique marketing tools over at uh, uh, the National Business uh, Greater Chamber? Well, we do. And again, I just mentioned the fact that we are very hands-on. We are very aggressive in bringing customers in. But the one I want to spend a little time talking about is our loyalty program. Uh, and Everybody's familiar with loyalty programs. You're, you're all probably involved in a number of yeah, them. Customer retention's huge. Exactly, exactly. Uh, colloquy, colloquy, rather, that's hard to say. <laughs> Colloquy.com reported that in 2013, there were 2.64 billion memberships in loyalty programs. And the average person in the U.S., and that's in the U.S., the average person in the U.S. belongs to over seven programs. Now, all of you probably uh, are have a grocery card or you have a pharmacy card or something like that. Well, what makes the TNBC loyalty program stand out is when the founders of TNBC started out, they noticed some shortcomings, if you please, with loyalty programs. One of them is the limitations. If you have a grocery store loyalty card, you can only get rewards at that grocery store. You can't cross over. And you're typically limited on what you can get with those points. For instance, you might be able to get gasoline, and that's about it. And it's a great thing if you want gasoline, but sometime you might want to get a nice juicy steak, but you're not able to use your points to get the steak. Okay, so there are limitations on that. The other thing that they noticed about typical loyalty programs is the amount of time it would take for people to get their rewards. For instance, you might have to wait a month to get your points, or you might have to go to the sandwich shop and buy 10 different sandwiches before you get a free one. And so the TNBC loyalty program seeks to, uh, to rectify those, what we consider to be shortcomings, in this way. First of all, what we ask our loyalty program members to do, and it's an option to be involved with it, to be in TNBC, we ask them to give a minimum 10% discount to anybody who brings a card and presents a card to them. And the cards are free. We hand them out all over Gwinnett County and all over the country, in fact, so they're free for people to use. Um, but what we do is we ask them to give a minimum 10% discount. So what that means is that because the card is good not just at one business, because it's good at every TNBC participating member's business, we're not limited in our rewards. So theoretically, you could start the day out by going outside and watching a TNBC member do your landscaping, 
and then he gives you a 10% discount because you're in the lo- because you have a loyalty card. Mm-hmm. You could go eat lunch at a TNBC member's restaurant and you could get a minimum 10% discount because you have a card. You could go to a salon in the afternoon or a barber shop and get your hair cut and get a 10% discount if that's a TNBC member. And that evening, you could go enjoy some entertainment with a TNBC member and get a 10% discount. So you're getting your rewards um, across the board. It's not limited. But also, instead of having to wait for them, you're getting them immediately. Great. We're talking with Mike Gifford with the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett. And uh, Mike's uh, got an interesting twist on um, on this uh, on this new new direction. It's uh, you know why do businesses need a marketing strategy, Mike? I mean, you know, is how does you know how does this actually you know what do people how do they think about taking on your kind of a program as part of their marketing strategy? Well, the question why do businesses need a marketing strategy? And you shared with me your background in marketing, and my observation after twenty five years in marketing is that way too many companies don't have any kind of marketing strategy. Their marketing strategy when they open a business is uh, get the signage, get the business cards, get a website, get some brochures, and then send somebody out to tell people about it. Okay. Uh, You need a plan. You need a direction. If if you're going on a trip, you want to know where you're going and how you're going to get there. Ultimately, the trip in business is to be successful and in in Yasmin's case, maybe even to get to a point where you want to sell that business and turn a profit on it. You need to have a goal. You need to have some markers along the way. And again, my observation has been that, that uh, a lot of businesses don't have or don't give enough attention to their marketing plan. Uh, they're, you know, they're so concerned with the day-to-day running up or operation of their business, they don't take the time to think about what's going to be best for us, what's going to be the best uh, return on investment for us. And consequently, what happens is they get the people coming in and they're offering this strategy or this, this program, this program, this program. We'll do some mailings for you. We'll do this for you, do that for you. And, and they just, it's just like throwing, you know, against the wall and hoping it sticks, basically. Is your marketing program better suited for certain companies or size companies? Is size a factor? Size is not really a factor, but I have a great love for small business. Nothing against the large business, but they started as small businesses. Mm-hmm. And I love small business. I, my background is I've started a number of businesses over the years and helped them grow and, and then moved on to another. It's not that I'm flighty. It's just that I enjoy the challenge of starting business, and I enjoy helping other people start businesses. This is why this is exciting to me, Mm -hmm. because I get to meet with people who have a dream, a goal in their hearts of success in their business. And this gives me an opportunity to share my experience with them as far as helping them to develop that business. So you you actually, your background is, is Mark, uh, well, you have a master's degree, right? In, in some kind of consulting? Actually, the, the master's, How does that relate? The master's degree is actually in counseling. Counseling, yeah, okay. It's actually in counseling. My degree is in counseling. And the way that helps me is, is this. One of the things that you learn as a counselor is to listen and observe. And let's give an example. Let's say here's the gentleman who wants to get some counseling. So he goes to a counselor and the counselor knows nothing about him other than the fact that this gentleman wants to come in and have some counseling done. So the two of them come into the office, they both sit down, the counselor looks at the gentleman and the first thing the counselor says is, I'm gonna tell you how to fix your problem. And you say, wait a minute, uh, I haven't even told you what my problem is yet, okay? Well, Unfortunately, the way a lot of times salespeople and marketers go about addressing businesses is just that way. I'm going to tell you what I have, and I may not even need what you have. And so 
my counseling background assists me. When I talk to someone about becoming a member of TNBC of Greater Gwinnett, the first thing I do is sit down with them and I talk about who they are, where they've been in their business, where they are in their business, where they want to go in their business, what, how they're trying to get there right now. I actually interview them and then I go back and I write a series of notes and I come back to the person and say, okay, here's what I believe we can offer you. Maybe we can't, maybe we don't have everything for everybody and that's fine. But the bottom line is, I want to know my members well enough that I can help them and be a true asset to them so that year after year they keep renewing uh, their membership in the chamber that they don't regret it. Okay. Mike Gifford with the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett, and he is the marketing strategist. So, Mike, what kind of events are, are coming up? What do you have going on in the area of uh, you know new activities and things that are coming up in the future? Well, we do have the traditional networking opportunities of a chamber. We have the traditional educational opportunities. Uh, again, like I said, we, we go out. I go out a lot and just meet with businesses. But we do have a big event coming up a week from Thursday on December 11th, starting at 5.30 till 7.30. It's an open event. Everybody's welcome, whether you're a chamber member or not. This one is a freebie. Everybody's welcome to come because I want to introduce people to TNBC. Mm -hmm. The location is at the Trade Bank International Building, which is at 1000 Laval Boulevard in Lawrenceville. It's uh, just down the street from uh, Gwinnett Tech. And we'd like everybody to come. Uh, we're, we do our market, we do our networking a little bit differently. Because of the fact that the, the cards that we give out are available to anybody, not just business or chamber members, we're inviting all the cardholders to come too. So basically what we're starting with, what we're doing in this networking event, it's almost like a mini expo to where you will see the current members have tables set up to where they can talk about their products or that people can come up to them and even buy products from them that evening as well. And when they buy, if they've got a card, they're going to get a, a minimum 10% discount. So we're, we're kind of changing the face of the typical networking event mm -hmm. in that sense and that we're opening it up to everybody. We're going to have door prizes. We're going to have holiday food. We're going to have you know, all kinds of great things. It's going to be a great evening. It sounds like it. Um, definitely want to take a part of that. So, uh, what kind of uh, you know what kind of vision do you have for the organization down the road? Let's look out. You know, three, four, five years. Okay. What do you see? The vision that I have is is this is a people helping people organization, and the vision that I have is a team of members who help each other. Yeah, you know, I already mentioned to you when I when I come into a building or I come into a business. I'm automatically thinking, first of all, what can I do to help you as the business owner? But also I'm thinking about what do my current members have that you need? Or what do you have that my current members need? And so I'm already thinking about how we can do that. I'm thinking about how we can, can help the team members. I want that same attitude to flow through all of the members of the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett. And it's already happening. We're already seeing that even with our small numbers as we're just getting started. We have small numbers. But even with our small numbers, we already have each one looking out for each other. And that's what I want. That's what I envision, whether we get to be uh, 500 or 1,000 or 5,000. I still envision people thinking about each other and how can I help my fellow member in their business. Okay. So, um, you know, you've been listening to Mike Gifford. He's uh, with the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett. And, uh, you know, what else uh, can we offer to the folks listening about your organization? Well, they're certainly welcome to call me. My number is 678-884-7661. They can go to the website, which is tnbcgwinnett.org. They can email me 
at mgifford at nbchamber.org. And I'd be delighted to talk to anybody. One of the other things I just wanted to mention real quick, uh, Dom, is I like innovations. I love to sit down and talk to new businesses, and I love innovations. I love to hear people talk about things that maybe haven't been on the market before. I've got patents in my name. I've got trademarks in my name. I've put products on the market that didn't exist before. So I love innovative things. And so in my mind, I'm trying to be creative with marketing for our members. For an example, one of our members is uh, uh, she was 10 years old when she started her business. She makes soaps from home. And we were able to uh, contact the Gwinnett Daily Post and get an interview for her. And they did a front page interview on their living section. Another gentleman uh, contacted a uh, Minority Business Awards Association in Georgia and promoted him to them. So, uh, you know, we use, we use the worn out phrase, thinking outside the box. Well, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing. And that's where, again, we're, we're a hands-on, aggressive organization. Excellent. Great. We're glad to have you as part of the show and, uh, the, and the business community as well, Mike. So you've been listening to Silver Lining in the Cloud, where we talk business to business. Thank you to our guest today, Yasmin Jandali with Starwood Business Group, uh, Noah Pines with Ross and Pines Law Firm, and uh, Mike Gifford with the National Business Chamber of Greater Gwinnett. On behalf of our sponsor, CDI Managed Services, I'm Dom Rainey, and it's been a pleasure hosting today's show. To listen to, 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 to this show and other Silver Lining in, a, in the Cloud broadcasts, Go to silverlining.businessradiox.com. And until next week, remember, when it comes to outsource IT support and migrating your company to the cloud, CDI Managed Services is your silver lining in the cloud. <laughs>